Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is when life gives you Parkinson's. Joining me on the podcast journey is my wife and partner in Parkinson's, Rebecca Gifford. Hello. 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 So here we are for a limited three-episode run Woo-hoo! before the end of 2021. We have been getting many notes. Hey, are you okay? Are you guys okay? You haven't put up a podcast in a while. But we appreciate your concern. And we're excited that we are coming back. And, and we are okay. We just needed a break after three seasons of the pod. In our last full episode in the spring, I teased three more episodes of the summer. And that never was done. You never got to hear it. <laughs> because summer started and ended in the blink of an eye. The blink of an eye. It was like, poof, gone. But uh, you know what time it is. What time is that? It's time for your favorite brain show. You know, not game show, but brain show. You get it? (laughs) Yes, I get it. Okay, I just want to make sure. (laughs) It's called A Blink of an Eye. The only game show in the world where contestants battle to the blink with brain facts. Uh, Did you know this? Your brain can possess an image that your eyes have seen for as little as... 13 milliseconds, which it turns out is less time than it takes for you to blink. Oh, so that's why when you turn away from something that you didn't really ever want to see in the (laughs) first place, before you can avert your eyes, it's burned on your brain. Right, yes, exactly. (laughs) Did you know most of us have around 86 billion neurons in the brain, and only 400,000 of those neurons are the dopamine producers? Whoa, 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 86 billion neurons in the brain, and 400,000 of those are being attacked and, and dying, and that's causing PD? That's astounding. Think about that. You can have issues with just 0.00000465% of your brain neurons, and it becomes this list of motor and non-motor symptoms longer than the list of ice cream flavors at Baskin Robbins. At least more than 33. At least. <laughs> Did you know? The brain gets bored easily. (sighs) Research has found that every 10 minutes you need something that sparks you emotionally to hit the reset button on your attention. If that 10 minute number sounds long, it's because the human attention span... Squirrel! Squirrel! (laughs) The human attention span continues to shrink. It's down to an average of 8 seconds, which is 4 seconds less than it was just 15 years ago. Did we mention ice cream earlier? Our final brain game fun fact. Are you ready? It's the final brain game fun fact. It's the final countdown. Although pain is processed in the brain, it has no pain receptors, so it feels no pain. This explains how brain surgery can be performed while the patient is awake with no pain or discomfort. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Ooh, doggy. (laughs) The brain is complex, complicated, intricate doesn't take much of a change in how the cells behave to send a human and our brains malfunctioning at a breakneck speed. Way back in 2008, this theory was already being discovered. Gregory Petsko took to the TED Talk stage. Here's Gregory Petsko. Thank you. I'm hoping to convince you that unless we do something to prevent it, over the next 40 years, we're facing an epidemic of neurologic diseases on a global scale. (laughs) A cheery thought. 
For 12,000 years, the distribution of ages in the human population has looked like a pyramid with the oldest on top. It's already flattening out. By 2050, it's going to be a column and will start to invert. This is why it's happening. The average lifespan's more than doubled since 1840, and it's increasing currently at the rate of about five hours every day. And this is why that's not entirely a good thing. Because over the age of 65, your risk of getting Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease will increase exponentially. By 2050, there'll be about 32 million people in the United States over the age of 80, and unless we do something about it, half of them will have Alzheimer's disease and 3 million more will have Parkinson's disease. Right now, those and other neurologic diseases for which we have no cure or prevention cost about a third of a trillion dollars a year. It'll be well over a trillion dollars by 2050. Alzheimer's disease starts when a protein that should be folded up properly misfolds into a kind of demented origami. So one approach we're taking is to try to design drugs that function like molecular scotch tape to hold the protein into its proper shape. That would keep it from forming the tangles that seem to kill large sections of the brain when they do. Interestingly enough, other neurologic diseases, which affect very different parts of the brain, also show tangles of misfolded protein, which suggests that the approach might be a general one and might be used to cure many neurologic diseases, not just Alzheimer's disease. There's also a fascinating connection to cancer here because people with neurologic diseases have a very low incidence of most cancers. And this is a connection that most people aren't pursuing right now, but which we're fascinated by. Most of the important and all of the creative work in this area is being funded by private philanthropies. And there's tremendous scope for additional private help here because the government has dropped the ball on much of this, I'm afraid. In the meantime, while we're waiting for all these things to happen, here's what you can do for yourself. If you want to lower your risk of Parkinson's disease, caffeine is protective to some extent. Nobody knows why. Head injuries are bad for you. They lead to Parkinson's disease. And the avian flu is also not a good idea. As far as protecting yourself against Alzheimer's disease, well, it turns out that fish oil has the effect of reducing your risk for Alzheimer's disease. You should also keep your blood pressure down because chronic high blood pressure is the biggest single risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. It's also the biggest risk factor for glaucoma, which is just Alzheimer's disease of the eye. And of course, when it comes to cognitive effects, use it or lose it applies. So you want to stay mentally stimulated, but hey, you're listening to me. <laughs> So you've got that covered. And one final thing. Wish people like me luck, okay? Because the clock is ticking for all of us. Thank you. Dr. Gregory Petsko spoke for five minutes, and what he said was alarming 13 years ago. Dr. Petsko's TED Talk's been played more than one million times, and he continues to warn the world about the oncoming neurological crisis around the world. His words echo the words that inspired me to share my story become an advocate, and launch this podcast. It was March 2018, seven months after my diagnosis. I still hadn't told many people, and then I heard Dr. Ray Dorsey on the Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's podcast talking about the Parkinson's pandemic and how the PD community needed to take a page from the AIDS and HIV activists. The voice from the HIV community was heard, regardless of whether people wanted to listen or not listen, it was heard. And with few notable exceptions, there aren't loud voices in the Parkinson's community. 
And if we don't have loud voices, not only are people today going to continue to suffer and sometimes suffer needlessly, but millions of people are going to develop the disease, some of whom probably don't need to develop the disease. And this is one of the great social challenges of our time is aging, and one of the great health challenges of our time is going to be dealing with diseases like Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. And the question now is, now that we know what the future holds or have a pretty good idea about it, what are we going to do about it? Those words are what shook me out of my diagnosis fog and set me on the path I'm on now. Dr. Dorsey went on to write the book, Ending Parkinson's Disease, with his colleagues, which launched PD Avengers. Today, Dr. Petsko is a professor of neurology at the Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. His boss is Dr. Howard Weiner, who is a professor of neurology at Harvard, co-director of the Ann Romney Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Weiner, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Glad to be here. How should we be thinking about the brain in 2021? Well, I think we should be thinking about it as um, something that is affected by many different biologic processes, okay? And that we need to understand those biologic processes. We need to understand in a disease what's going wrong and then how to fix it. So with this idea, in my book, I talk about uh, the brain is a crime scene. So you wonder how should we figure think about the brain in the 2021? We should think about it as a crime scene. In other words, what's there and what caused the crime and how do we fix it? You know, in a murder mystery, there's a body and the telephone's off the hook and there's a blood and the window's broken and you figure out what happened. Well, in, in Parkinson's, you uh, have loss of dopamine in the substantia nigra. Why is that there? You have alpha-synuclein. That's at the crime scene. Alpha-synuclein uh, deposit, which is key. Um, and, now, and then you have certain genes that may be involved. So I think we need to be thinking about the brain in the 20th as a crime scene. Who are the players at the crime scene? What are they doing there? And how do we get rid of them? Yeah, like what order did things happen? It's one of the big mysteries of Parkinson's disease, you know, the folding of the alpha-synuclein and the depletion of the cells and the, and the dopamine-producing brain cells. It's, it's like, what triggered what? Is it the microbiome? You know, it's, is it going up the vagus nerve from the gut? You know, maybe it's going up there and doing something. We, we, we just don't know. Well, that's exactly right. And there was a recent paper on Parkinson's published where they talked about two kinds of Parkinson's, brain Start Parkinson's that starts in the brain and Parkinson's that starts in the gut. So we've got to be able to understand those. You know, one of the early symptoms of Parkinson's is constipation and there's abnormalities in the gut. And there may be some Parkinson's that starts in the gut and goes up to the brain and other that starts in the brain. So we've, we've got to understand that. We've got it's origins. You got to know how it starts. <laughs> probably those two groups. There's probably 20 different versions of each of those as well. I mean, it's kind of like cancer from the 80s. It was just like, hey, you got cancer. And then suddenly it was like, oh, you've got breast cancer. You've got bladder cancer. You've got throat cancer. And everybody's an individual. See, when we study Parkinson's in the lab, we study genetically identical mice. There, people have Parkinson's. Each one is a little different. But, but nonetheless, there are basic, basic principles. And uh, it's very important for us to understand why some people will respond to a medicine and some people won't respond to a medicine. 
The World Health Organization says up to a billion people around the world will have some kind of debilitating forms of MS, ALS, Alzheimer's, and Parkinson's. Yeah, that's a lot of people. It's a billion people. <laughs> I mean, and what Parkinson's is now, the fastest growing neurological condition in the world. It's the number of people that were diagnosed the last 25 years will double the next 25 years. It's, it's not a controlled freight train, but nobody seems to really be putting any urgency behind it. It doesn't feel like it has the same cachet because it's such a long-suffering disease. Just There's just not that urgency because you're not going to die in two years. You, you, you have these long, torturous lives. Well, what you say is right, and that's why we started the Ann Romney Center. We want to put an urgency to Parkinson's. Say we want to put an urgency there. And one of the things that we, uh, you know, Ann Romney, her husband, ran for president. I won't get into politics here. But uh, in speaking to her, she said, you know, you need to come up with um, concepts that people can understand. And I came up with three concepts that it applies to Parkinson's and what we do at the Ann Romney Center. One is uh, um, uh, drilling for oil, okay? And that means looking for places where and not being afraid to make a mistake. No one's going to give you money to uh, drill for oil. But once you hit the oil well, they'll be happy to give you money. So that's the other is breaking down silos. And that's doing uh, putting people together that maybe didn't talk to each other. Someone who's a biochemist who didn't know about Parkinson's. So I drag them. Take a look at this brain. This one has Parkinson's. What do you think? And the third, which I think is very important, and this is the urgency, and I call it shots on goal. And what's a shot on goal? The shot on goal is when you try a new treatment in a patient with the disease, because you're never going to treat Parkinson's or come up with a treatment if you don't put a medicine into someone with the disease. And so what we're doing at the Ann Romney Center is uh, developing shots on goal, clinical trials and clinical things that we can do to help people. So I think that that's, that's how we get the urgency. We got to move towards shots on goal. Okay. Well, that makes sense to me. Michael J. Fox says the same thing. So that, that resonates with me. You, you need the money to do all that stuff. So you, you need the early supporters to give you that sort of seed money so you can prove your concept and get more money. It seems to always be about the money, isn't it? Well, I don't want to say it's always money, but, but money is crucial. Money is crucial to solving these diseases. And I know you have an organization, uh, Michael J. Fox Foundation, the other diseases have uh, organizations and philanthropy is key in people who are interested in brain disease, people who have someone afflicted with these brain diseases, they can make a difference by giving money, no matter how much they can give to help move this forward. And that's uh, very, very important. You think there'll ever be a time when the patent comes second, where we do open science to solve a problem, and then when you iterate on the solution, you get the patent. But that first one, it's free for everybody. Well, I don't know. It's a big. It's a, it's a philosophical question. And the government, the government could have taken over drug development. The government could have said, if you want to develop a drug and get approved by the the only people that can do it is the government. But the scientists and the governments felt, and I think they're right, that this is more best put in the hands of entrepreneurs and of uh, uh, people who are willing to 
put money in and get a big reward because most of these trials don't work. And I think that if we only, if the government said we're like the government, I mean, the government runs the military. You don't, you can't, you know, you can't be, if you want to build a uh, aircraft carrier in a hydrogen bomb, you can't do that. You know what I mean? The government <laughs> yes. won't let you. Thank, but, thankfully. Yeah. But they, but I'm, I think they're right in staying out of uh, a lot of drug development. Now in the NIH and places, there are special grants and special things for orphan disease. But in the end, um, uh, patents are important because this allows people to uh, have the potential to make money on it. And so they'll invest money. Most of the people, most all of the people who invest on new drugs, they lose their money because it's so hard. It's just yeah. so hard. You've written a book that's very interesting to me, and I think it will be to our listeners. The, the cutting-edge science behind treatments for Alzheimer's, MS, Parkinson's, ALS, and more. The book is called The Brain Under Siege, Solving the Mystery of Brain Disease and How Scientists Are Following the Clues to a Cure. What made you write the book? Well, I've spent my whole life working on neurologic diseases. I uh, began my work with MS, multiple sclerosis, and... Uh, became interested in the diseases that we don't have cures or good treatments for. So that's ALS and uh, Parkinson's, uh, glioblastoma, Alzheimer's. And as a doctor, I think we need to uh, come up for treatment with these diseases. So the brain really is under siege. And when I sit with a the patient, they, can, they always say, well, when they're going to be a cure doc, I mean, that's what I hear. And that's what we want. That's what everybody wants. So I wanted to explore this and share in a detailed way with readers what it's like to be on the front lines of research. Why can't we get to a cure? How are we going to get to a cure? How does science work? What are the stories? Let them come inside and understand what's going on. How are you defining cure? Well, this is a big question. And I actually... Uh, I. Last week, I had a patient, well, I mean, I don't know how many times I've had someone say, well, doc, when's there going to be a cure? So what I did is I turned the question around and I said to the patient, what do you mean by cure? Because everybody has a different. And I came up with three definitions of a cure, okay? One is you, someone comes down with the disease and you stop it in its tracks. It never goes further. That's one form of a cure. Number two, someone has a disability and you do something to take away the disability and they come back to normal. That's a second cure. And the third, we always say we cured polio, but we really didn't cure polio, we prevented it. So the third cure is never to let it happen. And I believe that one day, when we learn more about Parkinson's and these other diseases, what can trigger it, what can cause it, the ultimate, ultimate cure will be no one ever gets it. But meanwhile, uh, the cure is stopping it in its tracks. The hardest cure is rebuilding the nervous system. So those are my three, defini three definitions of cure that I got from my patients. So be before you ask them those questions, what were you thinking you wanted to have happen? Well, I the two things that I was most interested in, number one is stop the disease in its tracks. To me as a doctor, that's the cure I'm looking for. I want to sit down with somebody, 
and they say, you've got Parkinson's. I say, don't worry. These are the treatments you take. This is what you do. You can live a normal life. Everything will be fine. As a scientist, I'm fascinated with the idea of doing an experiment that will stop it from ever happening. So as a, as a practicing physician, I want a treatment that stops it. As a scientist in the big picture, I want to stop it from ever happening. If we were to stop one of these diseases, would we have a better insight on how to stop the others? No question. No question. There's common, you know, the brain is the brain and there's commonalities between different parts of the brain and what goes on. So, for example, there was a drug just approved for Alzheimer's. Okay. There's a lot of controversy, but one of the first drugs that showed something and they're giving antibodies, et cetera. They're trying the same thing in Parkinson's. They're trying the same thing in Parkinson's. And some of the things that we're working on, a very interesting area is the microbiome, which yeah. is all the bacteria in the gut. And what we learn on the microbiome in Alzheimer's or MS is going to help and applies to Parkinson's as well. So there's no question. What we learn in one disease will help the other. Now, I know when I was diagnosed, I was initially sent to an MS neurologist because my family physician thought I had multiple sclerosis. I didn't. He sent me to the Parkinson neurologist later. And that happened to Ann Romney. You introduce her in your first chapter. She came to you with MS, was looking for a second opinion. And you say the first thing you do when anybody comes in with MS is to figure out if that's correct. Why are we so bad at diagnosing brain diseases, doctor? So I wouldn't say we're bad at it, okay? I wouldn't say we're bad at it, but we just have to be careful. We just have to be careful. I'll tell you an interesting story. I had an MS patient diagnosed with MS, clear MS, and she came in and she was having more problems, walking or whatever, and we're trying to think, well, her MS isn't under control. And as I examined her, I discovered she had also come down with Parkinson's. And she now... We've treated her. She's on her MS drug. She's on her part. She's doing a lot better. So I wouldn't say it's hard to diagnose, but you got to be careful. You don't want to be wrong. If you're trying to, you know, if the car isn't running and you think it's because the wheels are flat, but it isn't because the wheels are flat because there's no gas, you're never going to get the car running again. So um, you always want to make sure. And I've cured a lot of MS by telling them they don't have MS. Well, you said it. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking this happens more often than it should. I know people who were misdiagnosed with like multiple system atrophy, and they thought they were going to die for two years, and then they realized they didn't have it. And these things happen. It happens to people, real people. And they have to suffer through this. And it's absolutely a shame that we don't have an objective test yet to see if, if we have these diseases. Well, we have more and more objective tests. We have We have them. So I don't want to give people the... Um, idea that we don't, it's hard to diagnose or we don't know. It can be hard. There are cases that are difficult, but in general, we're pretty good. Sometimes at the beginning, we may not make sure until the disease declares itself. Well, you know what, doctor, I say every hospital should just hire 10 people with Parkinson's to stand at the front lobby and uh, point at the people who have Parkinson's disease because we pick them up pretty easily. That's exactly right. In my book, on, in my chapter on Parkinson's, I tell the story of the, our head of neurology, a guy named Marty Samuels. And there was another doctor in our hospital and he was walking through the parking lot and Samuels recognized it was Parkinson's. So he said to him, Dr. Grayboys, who's treating you for your Parkinson's? And Grayboys says, I don't know. How do you know? <laughs> 
Chapter five of the book Brain Under Siege is all about Parkinson's disease. <laughs> and I know we're interested in that, but, but what are the similarities that you've discovered between these brain diseases? Uh, like, where, where's the through line? So one through line has to do with abnormal uh, folding of proteins, proteins in the brain that fold in the wrong way and cause damage. So that occurs in Parkinson's. It occurs in uh, ALS. It occurs in Alzheimer's disease, a little bit into MS. So one thing that goes through it is abnormal protein folding and how we can do that. That's one thing. Another thing that's a through, um, a through uh, uh, area is the microbiome, which I was talking about, which is the gut. And I think that's a big frontier. And I think ultimately that's going to be one of the ways that we get to our cure. But there's a gut-brain axis. Uh, people don't realize we have, I won't quiz you, but there's a trillion, I ask how many bugs in the gut. Someone says a million, someone says a billion. There's trillions, trillions of bugs in our gut. And there's a gut-brain axis. And uh, it goes both ways. You know, if you feel nervous, you feel it in your gut. So you don't feel nervous in your gut, you feel it in your brain, and then you feel So that, that, there's that communication back and forth. So one is abnormal folding of proteins, number one. Number two is the gut microbiome. Number three ultimately is going to be genetic therapy, Okay. Once we have a gene to be, to be able to alter the gene and help somebody. Now, not all diseases are genetic. One of the more dramatic successes is something called spinal muscular atrophy that affects young children who don't live beyond two years because they're muscles, they don't have a gene. And we identified the gene and gave gene therapy. And one of the most heartwarming pictures I see is two and three and four-year-old kids running around who got the gene therapy. So there's also genes in, in Parkinson's, genes in ALS, genes in MS. So some aspect of gene therapy. Now, another through thing that everybody talks about is stem cells, okay? And stem cells um, might be able to help all of these diseases. People think that you could just take stem cells and rebuild the nervous system, but it, it's too complex. We can't do that. We can't do that right now. One of the things that other diseases have tried that have been very, very successful in Parkinson's is deep brain stimulation. And that is that has worked in Parkinson's, whereas transplants have not worked. So uh, folding of proteins, the microbiome, the genetics, and the use of the immune system, the use of the immune system to... Uh, affect the brain. I think those are all the things that fit with every one of the diseases. What were your aha moments when you were writing the book and you were going through the different chapters and maybe like, oh, wait, I, wait a second. I, I hadn't realized that before. One aha moment, I mean, is when I realized how hard it is, how many trials have failed. Trials that were positive in phase two that didn't work in phase three. And I said, oh my God, it really is it really is hard. Now, let me stop you there. Do you believe we give up too quickly? I mean, I mean, if you look at the GDNF trial in Bristol a couple of years back in England, and you know, it worked for people. They felt better, the better lifestyle, and they just stopped it. 
Some of them are still feeling the positive effects of the GDNF, and yet it failed. It didn't have the effect on some people that they wished it would have or that they projected it would. Uh, not all Parkinson's drugs will work for all people. Why, why would we not figure out why that works for some and not others instead of just giving up altogether? Well, you, what you say is exactly right. And the key or the trick is that if you treat a group of people and there's only a subgroup that responds, you need to identify the subgroup and find out who they are and why they may have responded and then test the drug just in those patients. That's the way to do it. So you can learn something from every failed trial. But yeah. you got to be careful because uh, sometimes there's uh, 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 artifacts or something that make you think it worked, but it didn't. But in these difficult brain diseases, if the trial doesn't work, look at subgroups and find out why. I'll tell you something in Alzheimer's disease, they had a drug to clear A beta from the brain, okay? And in one of the early trials, they didn't check everybody to make sure they had A beta in the brain. And 20% didn't have A beta in the brain because they didn't have the measure. So that's very important. When you think of Parkinson's disease in the 200 years that people have been suffering from it, that we know of, um, and the fact that we're still using a drug that's over 50 years old as the gold star treatment, as the main treatment for it, you feel like we've gotten the short end of the stick? I don't think so. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. We know that the symptoms relate to dopamine and the substantia nigra. We know that. And there are better drugs and better ways to use that, etc. So I don't think gotten the short end of the stick. I think that the big key, the big key now in Parkinson's is managing the disease for the patients and understanding alpha-synuclein. That's the big key. Once we understand that, that's going to lead to the next breakthrough. What do you know about alpha-synuclein that I should know? Well, I, I think one of the most interesting things is that for many, uh, so alpha-synuclein is a uh, protein, okay? And proteins fold in different ways. And um, alpha-synuclein can exist as a monomer or a tetramer. What's a monomer? A monomer is like it's a single strand, like one straw, okay? A tetramer is there's four of them, like four straws wound around each other. And one of the things that we discovered here at our center, actually Dennis Selko found it, is that the normal structure that doesn't give disease is when it's in a tetramer, when it's four. Once it becomes one, it causes disease. So you may not know that. Maybe you didn't know that or you read about it. And so we're now coming up with drugs that if we can keep the alpha-synuclein in the tetramer form or the form where it's four strands, people won't get disease. Wow. So we need like an alpha-synuclein party, not a, not a single, you know, loner. Uh, that's great. Well, you know, every time we find out a little bit of the the puzzle begins to, to, to reveal itself. It takes time. It, it takes a lot of smart people like you and your team. to. We really appreciate what you're doing to, to help bring it to a stop, to stop it in its tracks, and, and hopefully at some point to prevent it from happening altogether. Well, we're doing it for you and for all the people that have Parkinson's. As a physician, what I want to do and what all doctors want to do is that when someone sits down in our office, and we diagnose, say, Parkinson's, we could say, don't worry, we have treatment, 
You can live your life. You can have your family. You can do what you want. Once you're over 100, you know, you're on your own, you know, <laughs> like that. And that's what we want. And, 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 um, and I guess what the patients have to realize is that it often doesn't go as fast as we want. One of the things I say in my book is a little bit of a joke is that two women can't give birth to a baby in four and a half months. Okay. Right. Biology takes a certain amount of time, but I, I think we're making a lot of progress in Parkinson's. I'm very excited. So, so what, what's in the pipeline that you are especially excited about? I'm excited about the drugs to affect alpha-synuclein. I'm excited about the microbiome and how we can manipulate it. And I'm excited by immune approaches where we give things immunologically to affect the brain. Those are the three areas. What advice would you give us on how we can help, you know, to advance the research, to try to help, uh, you know, be partners and not just participants in the research for, for free research programs? Well, the way you can be a partner, obviously, one is to donate funds. OK. Number two is um, to participate that there are trials going on uh, to donate blood, to donate stool samples. I mean, if we're going to understand Parkinson's, I can have blood from someone with Parkinson's if I can understand it. If the gut is involved, I need a stool sample from someone with Parkinson's. And if they don't give it to me, I can't study it. So I think people should participate in the research by participating in trials, giving blood, stool samples, whatever, undergo imaging, because that's where we're going to learn about it. I can study mice all I want, but I need to study people with the disease. All right. Well, if you come across a cure, I want to be your first call. I'll give you a call right away. I want... I, I appreciate your interest in my book. It's called The Brain Under Siege, and the brain is under siege. And we're trying to take that siege away. It's a book, I think, about hope, but it's also a book that it's tough. But just because it's tough doesn't mean we're not going to solve it. We are going to solve it. So he's a pretty interesting dude to talk to. Very. Yeah, yeah. And he was really open. Uh, we don't always agree on everything. I mean, he thinks they're pretty good at diagnosing Parkinson's, and uh, I'm not convinced yet. <laughs> <laughs> Although I will say I appreciated his transparency. Right. And that he's coming at this with the idea of the more I share about how the research process works, the better for everyone. So without awareness of how it works, we don't know how to help. We don't know what needs to be fixed, and so he doesn't have help fixing it. The more we know about it, the easier it is to recruit people to participate in studies, raise funds for a process that people actually understand, and it's not just going into this void. Right. Yeah, and he said, this is hard. He said the, the one line made me laugh. He's like, you know, two women cannot have a baby in four and a half months. Biology is hard, and and, and I, I you know I learned about alpha synuclein more than I knew. Uh, the the whole idea of the uh, monomers and tetranomers or whatever he called them, uh, where they have the one string or the four strings, and you want the the, the alpha synuclein that have those four things tentacles coming off of them. I had never heard that before. Uh, because if it's just the one, uh, once it gets the one, then you have Parkinson's. And so it's like, there's something there. Like, that, that's new to me. That, I didn't know that. He talked a lot about the microbiome, yes. too, which I very much appreciate. We hear a lot about that here locally. In the first season of the podcast, you spoke with Dr. Silky Cresswell yeah. here at UBC, who was in the midst of a study 
about the connection between the brain and the microbiome. We already have very exciting uh, findings. So for sure, there are differences between people who have Parkinson's and the controls in the composition of the microbiome of the gut. And generally speaking, the function of the microbiome in people with Parkinson's compared to without is different as well. And the most notable differences are that people who have Parkinson's seem to have a more inflammation-driven um, milieu. So anti-inflammatory, so inflammation dampening microbes are actually reduced in Parkinson's. And in addition to that, that so you will have more inflammation in the gut and in all likelihood also in the rest of the body uh, in Parkinson's. And that correlates with the changes in the microbiome. And it correlates with the function of those microbes. So there's something called butyrate, which is a short-chain fatty acid. And that is a substance that is produced by bacteria. And what it can do, it is also anti-inflammatory. So it dampens, it reduces inflammation. And that is reduced um, in people with Parkinson's. What is the goal of your microbiome research? So the goal of the microbiome research is to hopefully elicit whether there is a crucial role of the microbiome for Parkinson's. And that would be for how Parkinson's starts, but then also how it progresses and what symptoms we see with Parkinson's disease. There is quite good evidence to suggest that the microbiome and the gut are very early and very importantly involved in Parkinson's and how it develops and and how it progresses. She has since presented some research and presented the results from that research and is continuing to do research. And they're doing a lot of that at UBC. I'm happy to see see that they're doing that in other places as well. Oh, yeah. The microbiome has become a really important connection here. I'm actually, uh, her next trial, uh, they're screening me for it. I hope I get in because I can't wait to mail my poop. I just want to take that as a clip. That's the sound bite from this episode. I cannot wait to To mail mail my my poop. poop. To benefit Parkinson's research and brain research. Woohoo! The more we learn about the the gut-brain connection, because it's not just the neurodegenerative community that is talking about this, the more we all benefit from that not just brain health, but overall well-being. The more we learn about the gut's connection to how our bodies and our nervous systems work, the better for us all. We all benefit from that research. Well, and like he said, like when you get nervous, you feel it in your belly. That's the connection. Exactly, right? That's the first place that when you say, where do you feel that in your body? We ask that of our son. Where do you feel that in your body? It's almost always the first places in his stomach. I watched a webinar recently where a MDS said, um, yes, there seems to be an explosion of YOPD in recent years. Explosion. And these numbers are actually proving true. And it's the whole global pandemic of Parkinson's that Ray Dorsey spoke of, which grabbed your attention early on, which is one of the reasons why you do the work that you do. Right. So acknowledging that and the faster that governments and all organizations involved and all industries involved acknowledge that, the faster all of this moves along. Yes, uh, that's true. 
there we go. How do you feel? I feel good. We're back on the in the saddle again, and it feels uh, feels comfortable. Yes, it feels all right. We want to uh, wish our American friends a happy Thanksgiving, and we are going to be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, and it's going to be about DBS. Ooh, it's all, Ooh, these are always good ones. Lots of people talking about DBS right now in the Parkinson's community. Yeah, and there's some really cool advances that are already being used that you'll want to hear about. Trust me. Tune in next time. <laughs> Same bat station. <laughs> this is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez, sound designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's? You are not alone. Parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, the World Parkinson Congress 2023 in Barcelona, Spain. The WPC has pushed the event back one year for COVID concerns, so don't go in 2022. The VPC is in Barcelona, summer 2023. Make plans to be there with us. Go to WPC2023.org for details. The Webby Award-winning Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's podcast, hosted by Larry Gifford. Available on Apple Podcasts and at MichaelJFox.org. PD Avengers, a global alliance of people with Parkinson's, their partners and friends united to the cause of ending Parkinson's disease. Join us now at pdavengers.com. Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young onset Parkinson's disease. Spotlightyopd.org. And I'd really appreciate it if you would share this podcast with someone, anyone. Uh, personal recommendations are the most effective way for our audience to grow and to raise awareness for Parkinson's disease. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.